The way we consume the news is changing rapidly. 20 years ago, we typically bought physical newspapers from the local newsstand and watched the evening news on TV. Today, we're much more likely to download an app on our phones and scroll through a newsfeed or stream videos on YouTube. Behind all of these apps and digital platforms is a lot of AI, data and algorithms that classify, filter, rank and recommend what content we should and should not read. And that isn't the only way that AI is reshaping the news. In his excellent book, Automating the News, Nick Diakopoulos, Assistant Professor of Communication Studies and Computer Science at Northwestern, lays out just how algorithms and data are rewriting the media. He argues that in order to harness the full potential of these technologies whilst mitigating the risks, we must consciously design a hybrid journalism, one in which algorithms and data augment humans, but humans remain essential in safeguarding core journalistic values. You're listening to the Technology and Prose podcast. I'm Nikita Agarwal, and this week I'm joined by Nick to talk about his book and the future of AI in the media. Nick, welcome to Technology and Prose. Thanks so much for having me, Nikita. So to start off with, um, can you give us an overview of how algorithms, algorithmic techniques um, are being used in different parts of the media ecosystem? Yeah, sure. So there are, uh, I think, bits and pieces of automation and, and algorithms being used pretty much everywhere now in news production. So everything from story discovery, uh, using data mining techniques to content creation, using automated content production. Um, certainly methods for driving engagement, uh, algorithms and distribution. Um, and, you know, we're not talking about just uh, Facebook news feeds or, or Twitter creation algorithms now. We're talking about, you know, the homepage of the New York Times using uh, algorithms to distribute things. Uh, so it, it's really pretty pervasive in, in the news production side of things. It's also pervasive in sort of more of the business or organizational side of, of news um, production. Uh, so it's it's pretty pervasive now. You know, one, one thing where I maybe haven't seen it used as much yet is in actual reporting or, or information gathering, if you will. Um, so, you know, maybe strangely enough, no one has, has figured out yet how to automate uh, journalistic interviewing skills. And that uh, very much still falls on, uh, on human reporters to be able to do. Um, but uh, certainly there are technologies uh, nipping at those capabilities as well. I wouldn't say that there's a ton of machine learning. There wouldn't say there's a ton of deep neural networks, you know, all these big fancy buzzwords uh, that you hear uh, reported in the news media about AI. Um, but, but, but there are hints of, of some things in that direction, and people are, are experimenting with some of those more advanced uh, forms of machine learning and AI. Um, though I wouldn't say that aspect of it is, is quite as prevalent. Okay, so and, and so are there particular domains um, of news, particular topics where you see uh, more use of, whether it's rules-based algorithms or machine learning, and also like more potential for automation? 
Yeah, I mean, I think one of the areas where we've already seen uh, a benefit is in investigative uh, journalism. Uh, the ability to filter through large collections of documents um, has, has already uh, proven very valuable uh, for investigative journalists. Um, uh, you know, if, if you know there's a particular pattern that you're looking for in a document, you can train up uh, a machine learning system to be able to help you find that pattern uh, in, a, in a fairly reliable way that accelerates your ability to do so. Uh, you know, we're also seeing um, uh, various forms of automation being used in content uh, creation in, in different domains that are uh, rich in data. So think finance, sports, um, COVID is a, a nice example. You know, everyone's collecting COVID data, uh, testing and, and prevalence and, and now vaccine distribution. Um, so, you know, wherever we sort of see a very rich um, availability of data, we're seeing the application of automated content production um, in different ways. Um, you know, one, one thing that I'm pretty excited about now, which I think is a, an opportunity space for um, algorithmic news production, is in story discovery. Um, so, uh, you know, how to use um, statistics, machine learning, uh, sort of newsworth automated newsworthiness evaluation to try to actually detect interesting patterns in, in data sets to surface um, new things that might be interesting uh, to report on. So one uh, one project that I worked on in that vein, um, uh, we were calling the lead locator, uh, uh, was um, a project that I developed um, while I was on sabbatical at the Washington Post. And um, the, the space that we were working in was um, elections data in the US. Again, a very data rich space. Uh, and um, the post had paid to get access to the um, basically one of the large uh, voter files in the US. So this would be like every registered voter in the US with about 650 columns of information on every uh, registered voter. So just massive, absolutely staggeringly large um, database. And so we were interested in coming up with ways to look for particular patterns in that data that might help orient news reporters so that they know, so that they would know, um, hey, you know, if I'm interested in doing a report in Georgia, like which county should I go to Georgia to find like a large concentration of Hispanic people who are newly registering to vote. You know, it's like, like things like patterns like that and demographic patterns that might be indicative of sort of an underlying interesting story in, in how the electorate or the demographic is, is shifting. And so again, the, the idea here was to use, you know, harness the capabilities of data mining to, to orient journalists' attention, not to get the story for them per se, but just to get them in the right direction. And I think that's, it's an important um, lesson, I think, which is that, you know, oftentimes these systems, these tools, these algorithms, these, these bits of machine learning and, and AI, uh, they, they only get you part of the way there. And you need to complement these systems with, uh, with reporters, with journalists, with editors. Uh, who have particular expertise, who can formulate interesting questions or hypotheses, or who know how to interpret those um, those interesting patterns uh, that the AI has detected. Uh, 
And certainly I think we saw that with the lead locator project as well. Um, and in fact, we, we designed the system specifically for that because we didn't, you know, there was no, there was no notion that we wanted a completely automated system to do this. We wanted to help journalists. We wanted to augment journalists to help them uh, find more interesting novel places to go and report on. This really is um, consistent with the kind of central argument in your book um, that the role of algorithms in the media is to sort of augment human um, journalists and editors rather than substitute them. And, and you, you talk about um, a future of, of hybridization, of hybrid journalism, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, that's sort of a, a core um, idea from the book that I try to develop. I mean, the, the broader connection there is, and I think a lot more people are now talking about this, is this idea of uh, human AI interaction, HAI. Uh, and really the underlying question is, how do we put humans together with AI systems in ways that are productive, you know, for whatever definition of productive you want to have? You know, in the domain of journalism, it's, you know, can we put uh, algorithms together with people in ways that are productive for news reporting or storytelling. Um, and, uh, you know, I think one of the main challenges there is, you know, how do we design those systems effectively? You know, there are some things, some tasks that uh, algorithms are really, really, really good at, um, detecting patterns, scaling up, um, uh, you know, operating very quickly. Um, but, you know, there are uh, very uh, compelling reasons why you would want to have people involved uh, in some reporting process as well. Um, you know, uh, uh, expertise, uh, complex communication, and ability to sort of uh, assess uh, a situation dynamically. And so the design challenge is like figuring out, well, what are machines good at? And what are people good at? And like, how do we actually fit those pieces together? into information production processes or workflows that accomplish the things that we want to accomplish and which meet the performance expectations that we have of journalism. So, you know, it's, it's not interesting uh, to come up with an information process which is very machine learning heavy, but which only has 70% accuracy because that's just not going to meet the bar, the very high bar for accuracy in, in journalism. And so, it's that, that, that challenge of, of uh, hybridization or, or human AI interaction is figuring out the right configuration of, uh, of, of machine and human intelligence to meet the requirements of the, of the task that you want to accomplish. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, when you're describing your project at the Washington Post, um, the, the lead locator, um, if I'm not mistaken, um, I, I was thinking kind of how do you like resist some of the temptations of automation, right? So like, is this going to push journalism towards, you know, pursuing more data rich stories um, because the data is available? And that does that kind of create a kind of selection bias in the news? Um, and then relatedly, how do you then decide what is newsworthy? Is it just something that where there's a lot of data available? Yeah, I mean, I think that those are excellent questions. And I think that is sort of a concern, you know, when you're building these systems to be aware that you are not only shaping coverage around where data is available. I mean, I think this to connect back to something I was mentioning earlier, I mean, this, this sort of relates to this idea of needing to figure out ways to also automate um, the information collection or gathering. You know, if we can sort of think about ways to um, to facilitate a, a wider or broader 
collection of data, perhaps even in domains that are not traditionally data rich because it's too expensive or um, industry, you know, doesn't have a, an interest or in need or in collecting data, then we can sort of lower the cost of, of having a broader coverage of data. Um, but I think this in general, this is sort of um, maybe something that news organizations struggle with is like investing enough in their own data collection apparatus. Uh, and certainly, you know, reporting is its, is its own form of information gathering. But, you know, I'm, I guess what I'm, where I'm driving is something that's a little bit more structured, like structured data collection that is semi-automated in a way that can, can kind of scale up. Um, so, you know, the second part of your question was like, how, how does this impact, you know, how we decide what's newsworthy? I mean, yeah, that's also, that's also a thing that we need to think about is how the biases, the constraints of a computational paradigm shape what we find as interesting or, or novel or newsworthy. And, um, you know, to the extent that, uh, that uh, we can um, encode some of that into algorithms, I think it's interesting, but we'll always sort of need to take a step back and see what the bias is. So let me give you an example of this. Um, I was chatting with, with, uh, uh, some folks in, in South America who were running a fact-checking uh, operation um, using some machine learning to help identify um, which statements uh, should be fact-checked. So not, not doing the fact-check per se, but just, again, this idea of like orienting journalists' attention to find like which statements should be fact-checked. And, you know, one of the interesting things there was they were saying, well, yeah, we use a system, but we're aware that it's biased in particular ways. It might be suggesting that we check certain types of claims, not other types of claims. But, you know, we account for that in our editorial process. So when, you know, as we're thinking about the, the coverage of fact checks that we have, you know, we're directly addressing that. And so I think it's, I think we'll, we'll start to um, see editors who need to be trained in how to be aware of, you know, how might this algorithm be shaping what my reporters are bringing to me as interesting stories? And, or does an editor need to have their hand on the dial to say, I want the algorithm to shape coverage a little bit more this way and away from this other area. Uh, and um, that becomes another way to intentionally exercise editorial uh, interest and control. So it seems that, you know, the, the editors of the future will will need data science skills. Like you can't, you know, you need to be able to understand the data and what to do with the data. Um, and I think you've advocated for, you know, a more interdisciplinary education of journalists. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's right. And, um, you know, I, I definitely see things heading in that direction where, People are going to need more data skills. They're going to need more interdisciplinary skills. You know how how to work with data scientists or data journalists. Um, you know I, I don't necessarily advocate that everyone needs to know how to program or or code. Um, I think in some cases it can be very beneficial, uh, even to just have a basic understanding of of how code operates and works, because it sort of um, I don't know if empathy is the right word, but you know it sort of creates some understanding for the limitations of a machine and what it can and can't do. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you know, I think there are 
perhaps new educational paradigms that we should be thinking about to, to help people get there. Um, you know, more collaborative projects. Uh, you know, uh, I've, I've taught a class at the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern a couple times over the last year um, uh, in, the, uh, in the night lab uh, at Medill, uh, which is a project-based course, which um, uh, has students from not only journalism, but also communication studies, which is my home department, and then computer science. And so we have students from across the university who are sort of put on these project teams. They're very interdisciplinary, sort of cross-disciplinary, and they have to work together. They have to figure out um, how to talk uh, across um, different vocabularies. They have to figure out how to coordinate, you know, what's the more journalism and media aspect of this and what's my role there versus what's the more computer science-y, need to build this thing, need to collect the data um, aspect of it. I think, you know, one of the interesting developments in, in this discussion on algorithmic media is the role of social media platforms, um, particularly you know, Facebook, Twitter, and also search engines like Google kind of as, um, you know, gatekeepers of our attention to the news. You, you, we talked about journalistic values and the need for human editors to still play that role in achieving the kind of desired balance. So how does that feature in the increasing role of social media as kind of pur purveyors of the news? You know, their approach seems to be like primarily automated. Um, and are we risking a loss of journalistic values because of that? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we may. Um, I think that certainly what I've seen to date in terms of how platforms have implemented algorithmic curation doesn't strike me as particularly journalistically oriented. Um, you know, it doesn't, doesn't mean that it couldn't um, uh, head more in that direction in the future. But, uh, you know, a lot of it, I think, comes down to, to some extent, definitions. Like, what do you think constitutes quality content? What do you think constitutes interesting or important content? You know, so often when you look at platforms, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, Google, uh, you know, I have some recent research looking at TikTok. These, are, these algorithms are pretty much popularity detectors. Uh, you know, they're just feeding off like the most basic interactions that people take on these platforms to a large extent. And, uh, and you see that refracted in the types of content that, um, that tend to be privileged in these systems. So, you know, we did one, we did one uh, study where we were auditing um, uh, Apple News and comparing the trending story section of Apple News to the um, top picks, basically the editor's pick section of Apple News, which is all uh, human curated. And you can very clearly see sort of some of the differences there in the types of content uh, that are apparent. So trending stories tend to be uh, much softer in nature. They tend to cover celebrity and entertainment. And um, that's not necessarily bad, uh, but uh, it, you know, it creates uh, a different editorial lens uh, than say the, the editor's picks, which tend to be more hard news, more traditional news. And certainly we see Apple employing um, uh, people with, with journalistic training to, uh, to help edit that section. And so you, so, you, so you sort of see some of those values reflected there in the human curation. Now, could you make the trending section more journalistic? Of course you could, yeah. I mean, it would take some more engineering. You would have to deliberately decide that uh, trending 
was going to have an editorial perspective that wasn't about popularity. Maybe it would uh, be about um, some political angle or, you know, and, and then of course you would have to develop algorithms to be able to rank and rate content along whatever editorial dimension you want it to pick up on. Um, but, you know, I think it's, um, I think it's, it's up to platforms, you know, whether or not that's a direction that they want to go in um, and the degree to which they want to incorporate some of those other editorial values. Uh, thus far, you know, with the exception of Apple, I haven't, I haven't really seen it. And, and even for Apple, you know, it's only in part of the part of the app there. But is it, is it really up to platforms? I mean, is there not a like public interest in regulating these platforms as media organizations? And obviously this is a much bigger conversation. Yeah, those are, those are sort of hot topic conversations right now in terms of how to regulate the platforms. Um, look, I mean, I think that, there, you know, and, and of course this varies from country to country, but in the, in the U.S. context, you know, in terms of First Amendment protections, you know, I think about something like the New York Times uh, versus, say, uh, Twitter. Um, I mean, they each encode a different set of biases in the way that they curate content. Uh, and honestly, the New York Times, to me these days, is looking more and more like a feed, like an app. Um, when I when I load it on my phone, uh, that you just sort of have a one directional scroll through this feed. It's not an unlimited feed uh, like uh, like Twitter, let's say, but it's a, but it's a feed type of interface. So they're all sort of operating on the same basic logic. I think um, you know something like Twitter comes at it more from the algorithmic side, although there are elements of human curation there, and New York Times comes at it more from the manual side uh, of human editorial control, but it, at the end of the day, that's all mediated through an algorithmic process that's selecting uh, what's what's in that feed. So uh, back to the question of, of policy and, and governance, um, you know, I think, I think that uh, certainly there are, there are cases where we would want regulation to um, to uh, impose itself on the types of content uh, that we that we want to see excluded um, on these in these types of spaces, uh, I'm I'm less clear on the sort of the nature of regulation around, say, like um, diversity. You know, like, like would we would we have a regulation that guarantees a certain mix or a certain diversity of content? I'm not sure I would want that to be honest because. Uh, well, for one, it's the, I think the research is still out in terms of um, how people react to content that is clearly coming at them from another political perspective. Like the, the fear, I guess, is that you would end up polarizing people further if you diversify, if your algorithm diversifies content in the in the wrong way. Um, so that might be an area where um, more research needs to be done before we think about policy. Um, but, you know, I guess in general, like where I come down on it is, you know, we should have a diversity of algorithms that are participating in the media. Uh, and uh, if you don't like Facebook's algorithm, you go to Twitter, go to Apple, go to the New York Times, go to whatever other um, algorithmic content providers out there. Um, 
you know, I don't know that we want to regulate them so that everything is the same, but maybe we should embrace a, a plurality of different sort of editorial perspectives that are exercised in part through algorithms and in part um, through human editorial control. Absolutely. Um, I mean, do you think also that there is pressure on, say, traditional media to be more like new social media? So they have to optimize for engagement um, and maybe there is more kind of clickbaity stuff in some way because they're competing with that kind of traffic? To some extent. I mean, we I, I think we sort of saw this, you, know, you mentioned clickbait. We sort of saw this with the sort of wave of clickbait, um, uh, you know, five years ago or so. Uh, content providers trying to find that viral angle on their on their content that would get get it to spread. And this is something that's been studied um, in journalism studies uh, in the context of um, news values or, or newsworthiness. Uh, so, you know, some people will refer to it as shareability and the degree to which um, content providers, content creators orient their content production around shareability certainly serves to shape the uh, content that's available and that that which ultimately is circulating. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we I think I think there's evidence that some of these platform effects, in terms of what the platforms prioritize and what the platform algorithms prioritize, and how that can create a feedback or demand situation from the actual content creators as well. Um, you know, how strong is that effect? You know, I don't know. I mean, it, I don't I don't sense that uh, it dominates traditional news organizations. There might be some niche news organizations that are fully oriented around platform virality. But in terms of like traditional mainstream media, I think maybe they gesture in that direction, but they're pretty, I think they're pretty solidly focused on what it is they want to cover too. And just sort of taking that a bit further, like what, to what extent does the business model of, um, you know, news organizations sort of shape the way in which an algorithm might be optimized. And I'm particularly thinking of kind of the sort of ad-driven business model versus the subscription model, right? And platforms obviously almost entirely um, ad-driven, whereas traditional media are a mix. And so, you know, like, can we imagine that they would be able to survive on subscriptions only? And would that lead to a kind of more balanced media landscape? Yeah, I mean, I think like the ideal version of the media landscape has different news organizations that are funded in different ways because each of those funding mechanisms puts a, puts a different pressure on the type of content that's produced so you know if you have a plural a plural media um, production ecology then uh then some of it can be ad driven some of it can be subscription some of it can be nonprofit, some of it can be crowdsource funding um uh some of it can be public funding and these all shape content in, in, in somewhat different ways. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, more of everything, I guess. I, you know, I don't, I don't know that I want to live in a society that you know has media funded through only one of those mechanisms because I feel like different media serves different purposes, and in some cases, uh, bias created through a subscription um, is not particularly relevant or detrimental in the in, in sort of for the broader public um so 
Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of advocating for, uh, for many different approaches there. So you dedicate a very interesting chapter in the book to news bots. Um, so can you tell us how bots are used in the media and, you know, like maybe what are the risks of this phenomenon? Yeah, sure. So uh, news bots uh, have, I think, gotten a bad name um, uh, or bots in general maybe have gotten a bad name over the past few years in terms of their ability to manipulate attention and, and spread misinformation, spread propaganda, um, drown out uh, public conversations and these kinds of things. You know, in the book, um, I do sort of nod toward, toward those types of dangers, but I also sort of try to bring things around and, and talk a little bit more about the potential upsides of news bots. And, you know, not just sort of helping news organizations disseminate content on, on uh, platforms, but also things like new ways to express opinion, you know, in, in ways that are native to platforms in ways that can, can engage people that uh, take advantage of uh, the sort of automated nature of those interactions or, or even to use bots to participate in accountability processes. So to help, um, uh, monitor uh, something or someone on social media using a bot to sort of draw a constant flow of attention uh, toward, let's say, that person's activity or behavior. Um, so there's there's you know some examples of this online uh, where you know uh, there's one bot that would um, look for like if any one of Donald Trump's uh, family members had like liked it, liked a tweet uh, or followed someone, you know, it would sort of like pop up and, and draw attention to it. And, um, you know, I'm not sure that there was, that there's strong evidence that that type of bot driven accountability is sort of long-term effective in terms of, you know, if you want to hold someone accountable, it should be about them explaining their behavior and potentially changing their behavior as a result. So I don't I don't know if bots have sort of reached that that full potential of holding someone accountable. Um, actually, I have some doubts about whether or not they'll they'll get there. But they can contribute to that by drawing attention to particular behaviors. Let's say uh, on social media. Yeah, I really liked um, your project Anecdotal uh, NYT. Is that right, Anecdotal? Yeah, that was an experiment. Um, Anecdotal uh, was an experiment from. Uh, gosh, I think we started that in 2016 around then, uh, and it ran for a couple of years, uh, and uh, we uh, we collected some data on it. The premise was that we wanted to bridge the conversation between how people were talking about the news on the New York Times website and how people were sharing the news or talking about the news on Twitter. And so what the bot does is it listens on Twitter for people who are sharing New York Times um, story article links. And then for any article uh, that it finds, it'll go out to the New York Times and collect all the comments for that story. Um, and uh, not every article has comments, and so there's some articles that, that are left out. But if it finds comments, it, go, it goes and collects those and um, evaluates them and tries to identify um, basically individual stories, personal stories, personal anecdotes that are being described in those New York Times comments. And then it grabs that comment and it pulls it back into Twitter 
uh, as an image, basically, and tweets back at the per at the person who had originally shared the article and, and says something along the lines of, "Hey, you know, someone, you know, here's someone's uh, experience or or comment um, in response to this article that you shared." And so it's trying to create that that bridging function of pulling the conversation from one platform, the New York Times, into another platform, and also stimulate people to. Um, to just have a different perspective on the article that they shared. Uh, and, um, and so, as I mentioned, you know, we, we, we ran this bot for a couple of years. We collected some data to see how people were, were responding to it. Uh, and actually, we have an academic article um, out on this just, uh, just uh, maybe six months ago where we kind of go in, in depth and analyze some of those interactions. And, and, and it's, it's fascinating how people kind of interact with these bots online. Certainly there are some people who dismiss it outright and say, hey, you're a bot, stop being a jerk. You know, I didn't ask for this, go away. Uh, but actually that's a pretty small number of people. Like I forget the exact number, but it was maybe like five, four or 5%. Um, there's, but there's a lot of people who were much more positive. Hey, thanks, I didn't know about that. Hey, that's an interesting perspective. So you're sort of giving them a new angle to see that, that news uh, story, which I think is interesting. Um, and you're also, uh, I think just um, in, some case, in some cases, giving people an opportunity to also open up and respond. So people in some cases would actually write back comments or, or respond to the bot or respond to the comment that the bot had curated for them. And so there's sort of an opening there. And we didn't build the bot to be a chat bot, so it wasn't sort of back and forth. But I think there's an interesting opening there to explore the design space of like, you know, a news bot that was more chatty that would try to engage people um, in different ways around commentary on the news. Um, and anyway, I think this is a fascinating space. I think, uh, I think there's opportunities here to drive engagement. You know, I mentioned in, uh, dissemination and engagement is one of the sort of instrumental uses of bots that a lot of news organizations see. Um, and we even saw that with Anik Bottle in terms of driving interactivity, driving comments, driving exposure to, uh, to the New York Times content. Um, I think there's a lot more that could be done there uh, by news organizations. It's such an interesting project. And you know, in addition to the advantages you describe, I, I feel like it really puts kind of a human face on comments that maybe would just go kind of unnoticed, um, and on, on personal stories that may never like be surfaced. But but there is also the like negative side, right? Like malicious bots, um, bots that are you know used to propagate fake news, uh, mis and disinformation. Um, like this is a big area. What like what what do you what are your thoughts on what we do about malicious uses? Um, kind of the future of of um, a mis and disinformation in some ways. Yeah, part of me is sad because you know, you know, any technology can be used in in good or bad ways. And as much as I try to be positive in the book and, and thinking through some of the positive ways, we do also need to address what are the negative consequences of these technologies and what what do those negative consequences mean for journalism and for and for news production. So one of the one of the suggestions I make in the book is actually this idea of, of kind of thinking about social media almost as its own weather system. So, you know, there's there's going to be constant like bot storms on social media where, you know, 
some national actor or some corporate actor is seeking to manipulate the conversation on something and they're sort of injecting uh, propaganda or they're trying to overwhelm a communication system with a particular perspective. And it almost, you could think of it as, as, as a beat where on a daily basis, you know, maybe journalists need to be out there reporting saying like, hey, this trend today looks like it's being manipulated from IP addresses in this country. And, you know, and we think something's going on today uh, in terms of the manip manipulation of the conversation around these three topics. Um, so almost treating it as its own beat, as its own um, area that needs to be covered because they think it is sort of dynamic and shifting. And some of it is, of course, longer term and, and could be framed more as investigative journalism where journalists sort of need to dig into these networks, need to understand uh, how botnets are, are, are influencing uh, particular conversations or are being deployed by particular national actors. Um, and I think that's, that's definitely um, all valuable stuff. Um, you know, what else? I mean, I think uh, just in terms of journalistic practice, you know, having your guard up around uh, social media content is just increasingly important. I think in the early days of social media, there was some some form of ebullience around social media. Uh, um, oh, oh, hey, there's a there's an eyewitness here, and they saw something interesting happen, and we can just take that content and include it on our website, and it's like an eyewitness report, and it's like, well, slow down there, you know, like let's double check that, like was this person actually there? Could this be a a, a deep faked image, you know, or a manipulated image? Is it, is it accurate? So the need to do additional reporting around this content is also a, a practice that I think has emerged and begun to solidify over the last 10 years as um, journalists, I think, sort of took that initial excitement and realized that they needed to sort of layer on practices to ensure the credibility and the accuracy of content uh, that was coming up there. Yeah, and, and what you just what you call um, algorithmic accountability reporting is it's clearly a really important um, area of of journalism kind of going forward. I am wondering though um, whether there are obstacles to that from a from a legal perspective, right? And kind of getting information. There's obviously uh, various concerns about uh, scraping websites as potential abuse of um, uh, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, and also like platforms policies presumably prevent journalists from accessing information about the, you know, the ultimate um, identity of a bot. Yeah, I mean, sure, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of challenges there around algorithmic accountability reporting. I mean, you know, I think of um, uh, the, the types of ethics involved here. And I think, you know, journalism is, is, in, a, is in an interesting space where I think if you can, if you can sort of like, make a compelling public interest argument, uh, you can you can probably do all of these things. You know, you can scrape the websites, you know, uh, and and analyze that uh, that data that you're collecting. As long as there's sort of case that the upside from the public interest point of view is there or, or, or could be there and sort of supports that, that practice. Um, but certainly, um, you know, it's it still can be a little dicey. I mean, you know, we we do a lot of scraping in my lab. Um, you know, right now we're we're scraping 
uh, a lot of documents from government websites because we're interested in algorithms in government and, and finding out uh, where algorithmic decision-making is happening in government agencies. Uh, so we certainly participate in, in a lot of that stuff. A, a final question for you. What, what does the newsroom of the future look like, say 10 years from now and maybe 20 years from now? Oh, wow. Um, so there's going to be different versions of the newsroom of the future, uh, some of which will be much more automated and, and sort of algorithms infused, and some of, some of which are, are more sort of traditional in that sense. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, if we're talking about something like a, like a finance reporting newsroom or, or a sports reporting newsroom, then yeah, we might see more and more automation and, and algorithmic production and data-driven, uh, content production. Um, you know, if we're looking at more investigative journalism, I think we'll see a lot more hybrid journal, you know, hybrid, um, systems, machine learning systems that can help investigative journalists sort of sift through and find interesting patterns. But at the, at the end of the day, my, I think my real belief is that even though there will be different mixtures of automation and people in different types of newsrooms, um, I think ultimately we're still going to have a lot of people around. I, I, I really don't see the argument for uh, tremendous job loss in, in journalism as a result of automation. Uh, I think that, you know, we will um, continue to see benefits from speed, from breadth of coverage, from increased quality of coverage or increased comprehensiveness of coverage as a result of deploying algorithmic uh, techniques, um, rather than sort of a whole scale reduction in, in labor. And I think it just really comes down to the, the unique input that, that uh, creative individuals provide to finding out new information and knowledge about the world. There's just so much that algorithms can't do. You know, these systems tend to be very brittle. They don't adapt over time very well. They're limited by the data that's available. They can't, they don't have social understanding, so they can't push back uh, against uh, uh, people in society. Uh, you know, if if a bot walked up to you on the street and asked you a question, would you feel compelled to, to answer it? Um, no, I mean, but if a human being uh, with a press badge comes up and asks you a question, would you feel like maybe you're a little bit more obligated to answer? Um, yeah, maybe. Uh, so, you know, at the end of the day, I think there's a, there's a solid case for uh, the newsroom of the future having more algorithms and automation in it, but still having a lot of people in it. Those people, their jobs that those people have are gonna look different. They're gonna, you know, as we sort of discussed a little bit before, those people are probably gonna need to know, have more data skills, uh, some awareness of how algorithms and automation work. Um, and they're maybe gonna need to understand how to collaborate with automation in effective ways. Um, so, you know, that comes back to the skill development and training and education uh, for these uh, future newsrooms. But, uh, but yeah, I think we're going to, I think we're going to see um, uh, robust um, uh, incorporation of, of people into that future newsroom.
Nick, thank you so much. This is such an interesting book and your research and area of research is just fascinating. So thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Nikita. I really appreciate it and had a, had a blast chatting with you today. That was Nick Diakopoulos discussing his latest book, Automating the News, How Algorithms Are Rewriting the Media. On the next episode of Technology and Prose, I'll be joined by Sam Woolley to talk about his new book, The Reality Game, how the next wave of technology will break the truth. It's pretty simple. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, any of these social media companies, they're beholden first to their shareholders. What they care about is the bottom line. And computational propaganda, it's been shown, benefits them because it, it, it amplifies the numbers of people on their site. It amplifies content. It means more ad views, more clicks, more interaction even if it's not real interaction, even if it's false or manufactured. Thank you for listening, and until next time.